Hi, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow. And while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people just like you and me who've been through extraordinary times and then found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from them. I want to thank you all for being here today. This is going to be an exciting conversation with my special guest, Brett Johnson. And Brett, are you there? I am. Yay! I'm so excited that you're here. <laughs> I've been watching, I tell you, I've been watching your YouTube videos all morning to get all psyched up for this interview because it is going to be an extraordinary discussion, but I want to tell people a little bit about who you are. Okay. And you told me that you work with cybersecurity, cybercrime, fraud. You're an identity theft expert, a keynote speaker, a consultant, a writer, a podcast personality, and this is the best, a former USA most wanted cyber criminal. Now, you probably don't want to be known by that because you are one well, of Well, that's probably not the best. <laughs> but you're known as one of the top experts in the world on cybercrime, identity theft, fraud, and cybersecurity. And you, you gain this experience not through schooling, but through hands-on. And sometimes hands-on is the only way to learn. But we're here today because you know my organization that I work with, which is the Society for Citizens Against Relationship Scams or Scars. It's an international organization that works with survivors, as I call them, uh, victims of identity, well, well, there is identity theft, but relationship scams. And it's an international problem. And when I, when I got introduced to you, I watched your YouTube video to AARP, and my, mm -hmm. my mouth was just open. I'm like, who is this man? And the more I watched, and then I reached out to you, and I'm thinking, he's really incredible. And there's so much to learn, although part of me should really be angry with what you did, and that's sure. not necessarily, I mean, you, I don't think you were involved in relationship fraud, but the scammers in general, I get so irritated at what they do, but when I found out about my scam, when it was revealed, all I wanted to know is, how did he do it? Or, as you would say, how did they do it? So... We're going to launch into your story, and I want to kind of go back. I don't want to – I mean, the headline of America's Most Wanted was very intriguing. But I want to go back to your defining moments and hear your story. So what created Brett Johnson? What, where do you start? <laughs> where, do you, where do you start? Well, um, you know, you're right. I made the United States Most Wanted list. The United States Secret Service referred to me as the original Internet Godfather. 
The reason I would refer to that or call that name is I built the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor to today's Darknet and Darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. And of course, that is not, I went to prison, I served seven and a half years. Had an escape during that time, but um, that is not where I began my life of crime. And before I start into that, I want people to know I do not blame my childhood on my choices as an adult. My choices as an adult are mine. Um, I say that because I began my life of crime at 10 years old. Um, I'm from Eastern Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky is one of these areas like the panhandle of Florida, parts of Louisiana that if you're not fortunate enough to have a job, you may be involved in some sort of scam, hustle, fraud, whatever you want to call it. My mother was basically the captain of the entire fraud industry, and she, I mean, she no crime too big or too small. From stealing a 108,000-pound Caterpillar D9 bulldozer, she took a slip and fall in a convenience store, tried to sue the owner. She had a neighbor she used to pimp out. That was my mother. My father was not like that. My dad was a good man. The problem with him was he loved my mother so much that he became the enabler of the family. He was scared of losing her. If she came up with an idea, he would support it 100%. And she was, she, she was an abusive parent. Uh, she could be physical, but her heart wasn't in that. It was more in the, uh, the emotional, the verbal, the mental, the negligence. She used to bring men home in front of my father. He would sit there and cry and beg her not to do it. She'd do it anyway. She finally leaves him. At that point, we moved from Panama City, Florida, back to Hazard, Kentucky. That's where I'm from. And she kept up those partying ways. She would, uh, I was 10, my sister Denise, 9. She would leave us at the house. Sometimes she'd take us with her. She'd leave us, leave us in the car. We'd wait in the living room while she went and partied in the bedroom. But uh, most of the time, she left us at home. This, uh, this one time we've been, I get the worst parts from my mom and my dad. I get the, uh, the criminal mindset comes from my mom. The fear of being abandoned uh, comes from my dad. So we've been, we'd been home alone for a few days, no food in the house. And I'd post up at the window seeing if mom was driving down the street. Sometimes I'd walk out in the driveway, see if she's driving home. Denise, my sister, she was age nine at the time. She did. She was not like that. Denise was just the, the kid who was angry all the time. Um, so we didn't have any food in the house. Denise walks in one day and she's got this pack of pork chops in her hand. And I'm like, where'd you get that? She's like, I stole them. I was like, huh, show me how you did that. So she takes me over to A&P and she shows me how she shoplifts food. And I'm like, you know, that's a great idea. Let's do this. So, so we start stealing food, look across the way and there's a Kmart over there and Kmart's got clothes, so we start stealing clothes, and then it becomes, you know, this perverted form of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, books, games, jewelry, music, toys. Mom comes home after a few days, sees all the stolen loot we've got, asks where it came from. I stand up. We found it. She's like, no, you didn't find that. My sister Denise, she stands up, nine years old. She doesn't lie at all. She's like, we stole it. My mom looks at my sister. She was like, um, show me how you did that. And she joins us. Um, I say she joins us, but she, she actually starts running us as little shoplifters or distractions from shoplifters. She goes and gets her mother as well to join in, and we become this intergenerational shoplifting ring in eastern Kentucky. You take these road trips. They go to J.C. Penney and steal you know, clothes and jewelry. I go to the bookstore and steal books because that's the guy that I am. But that's, that's the first crime I committed. And, again, I don't blame my childhood on my choices as an adult. When I'm a minor, I can't help that. But as an adult, those are my choices. Um, for example, my sister, 
other than that one shoplifting experience, she never breaks the law again. She goes off to be a great parent, great teacher, great citizen. Me, I'm just the guy who kept on going. And as I got older, I got more and more involved in the types of frauds and crimes that my mother and that side of the family was committing. So insurance fraud, benefit fraud, forgeries, charity fraud, um, stealing coal, any type of scam or fraud you could possibly imagine, I was involved in from age 10 up until I finally off, broke off on my own in the mid-90s and uh, went into internet crimes. I was actually, I faked a car accident to get the money, to get the insurance money, to get married, moved from Hazard, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky to go to school for English and theater. And again, I'm the guy who's afraid of getting abandoned all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm like my dad. I'm scared that the ones that I love will leave me. So I told my wife, I was like, hey, don't you worry about, about work or anything. I'll do the job. No, don't worry about cooking and cleaning. Yes, I can do all that and take a full-time class load as well. So here I am, you know, 50 hours a week work, 18-hour class load, trying to do all the cooking and cleaning too, and couldn't do it. Something had to give. What gave was a job that, well, you still got to eat. So at the, that proclivity of fraud that I've already got, it's like, okay, what do we do? So I was doing some charity fraud at the time with the Kiwanis Club, had set up my own Kiwanis Club, as a matter of fact, was um, doing charity fraud and then found eBay and knew there was some way to make money on eBay, didn't really know how, until one night I'm watching Inside Edition and Bill O'Reilly used to host that thing. So Bill O'Reilly was on there talking about Beanie Babies. And this one that we're profiling was called Peanut Royal Blue Elephant, selling for $1,500. And here I'm, I'm pretty naive about that at the time, so I'm like, I need to find me a peanut. So I skip class the next day, go around to all the Hallmark stores looking for Peanut, can't find him. And I figure out pretty quickly you can't find him because he's on eBay for 1500 But they had these little gray Beanie Baby elephants for $8. And I'm like, huh, if I bought a gray elephant for $8, stopped by the Kroger grocery store on the way home, picked up a pack of blue wrist dye, went home, tried to dye the little guy, found out pretty quickly why I got that D in home economics. They're made out of polyester. They don't hold dye very well get them out of the bath, look like they've got the mange. And uh, I ended up ripping a lady off for $1,500. Um, that animal looked like crap when I got through dyeing it, but I found a picture of a real one online, posted it. The lady thought I had the real thing. She won the bid. As soon as she wins the bid, that history of mine of social engineering and scams and fraud kicks in. I send her a message immediately. You know, hey, I've never done any business with you. I don't know if I can trust you. What I need you to do is send me a U.S. postal money order. Why? Because it protects both of, both of us. You send that to me. Once it clears, I'll send you your animal. She did that. I send the animal out the next week, immediately get a phone call. The phone call I got was, this is not what I ordered. My response was, lady, you ordered a blue elephant. I sent you a blue-ish elephant. And right there was the first, that was the first cybercrime I committed, but it was also the first lesson of cybercrime that I learned. And that lesson was, if you delay a victim long enough, if you just keep putting them off, a lot of them get so exasperated, they throw their hands up in the air, walk away, and you never hear from them again. And very few, if any, ever complained to law enforcement. So that was the first lesson I learned. And very unsophisticated. I didn't, I was doing it under my own name, everything else. But I kept going. And as I kept going, I got better and better at hiding identity, at understanding the dynamics of online crime, until finally I'm, uh, I, I move over into pirated software, 
pirated software leads into installing mod chips. So there are the chips that are in the system. So basically gaming systems, you put a little chip in there, it allows you to play so um, uh, pirated software. That led into installing mod chips into cable boxes, cable television boxes, so you could watch all the TV channels, the pay-per-view and everything else, which finally led into programming satellite DSS cards. So the 18-inch RCA satellite systems, you can program the card so it turns on all the uh, pay-per-view as well. So I started doing that. About the same time I did that, a Canadian judge ruled that it was legal, legal for Canadian citizens to pirate satellite DSS signals. So overnight, it sets up an entire little industry in the United States. You go down to Best Buy, buy the system for $100, take it out in the parking lot, open it up, pull the card out, throw the system away, program the card, send it to Canada, $500 a pop. Started doing that, making a lot of money. Had so many orders that I could not fill them all. Thought to myself, why do I need to fill any of them? They're in Canada. I'm down here. Who are they going to complain to? So I didn't fill any of the orders. Stole even more money. Got worried about how much was coming in. Thought I was going to be looked at for money laundering. Figured the best thing that I could do is get a fake ID, open up a bank account under that, launder the money through that. I was at university at the time, UK, had no idea where to get a fake ID. So I got online, looked around, thought I found a guy, sent him $200, or sent him $300, no, $200, sent him $200, sent him a picture, and he rips me off. And uh, I got pissed. I got really pissed. The, uh, the result of that was shadowcrew.com. So that, so that was the first organized cybercrime community. I, the problem was that I still needed the ID, didn't know where to get it, kept looking around until finally found a site called Counterfeit Library. I ended up taking over their forums there, and we built this thing that you see today as modern cybercrime. So before Counterfeit Library and then Shadow Crew, which I built and ran both of those, before that, if you were looking to engage in some sort of organized cybercrime, the only avenue you had was an IRC chat session, an internet relay chat session. So it's kind of this rolling chat board who you have no idea who you're talking to, who you can trust. If you're dealing with someone, if they're, what their skill level is, if you're trying to buy a product from someone, a criminal product, if the product even exists, if it works, anything else. Shadow Crew and Counterfeit Library gave a trust platform that criminals could use that's still in use today. So anytime you see media talk about these forums, darknet markets, anything else like that, that began with Shadow Crew and Counterfeit Library. That's why I'm called this original Internet Godfather. Uh, Shadow Crew makes the front cover of Forbes, August 2004. October 26, 2004, United States Secret Service arrests 33 people, six countries, six hours. I'm the only guy who gets away. They pick me up February 8, 2005, and the Secret Service gives me a job. It doesn't stop there because I'm the idiot that decides to keep breaking the law from inside Secret Service offices. So I do that for the next 10 months until they find out, at which point I take off on a cross-country crime spree, still $600,000 in four months, placed on the United States Most Wanted list. The day I'm placed on the Most Wanted list, I look at it and I decide that, what are you going to do now, Brett? Well, I'm going to Disney World. So I go to Disney World, last about six weeks in Orlando, get caught, sent to prison, escape from prison, get caught again, finally serve out my time. So that's the um, that's, and that's just the bare bones story, I guess you could say. Well, um, and what's incredible to me is I, I saw that story. I watched it on YouTube. And right. you said that you had some training or you'd gone to university for acting and, and theater. You do an excellent job when, you, when you're doing your YouTube 
your videos because it is so amazing. It's funny, and but it's so serious. And and you know when you say that you don't blame your your family or you, on the nature versus nurture, um, I remember asking the my, the scammer, my scammer, um, mm-hmm. why did you do it? And you know what he he immediately went back to, you know I wasn't with my parents and over here uh, the economy is bad and we learned as kids and 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 part of me wanted to just shake the mothers and say. Where are you in this situation? Sure. Why aren't you, you know? Why aren't you? And I have three sons and a daughter. I'm like, right. why aren't you right. raising your children better? But like you said, it comes up to choices made. As well, that's own. that's the thing. When you're uh, and and I would tell your your scammer the exact same thing. It doesn't matter about the economy right now. We've got 40 million people out of work. 40 million. We've got the worst economic times since the Great Depression, since really the past 150 years. We're in the worst economy ever right now. Even though that's that bad, even though people have had horrible upbringings, it's still a choice, unless you're a minor, because your parents tell you what to do when you're a minor, but when you become an adult, it is your choice. You actively have to choose to victimize someone. So all these people are out of work that are needing money. A lot of them are going to turn toward crime in order to provide for their families. But that is still an active choice to do that. With me, it was an active choice. I chose, and it took me a long time to realize that, because I used to justify my crimes by saying the exact same thing your scammer said. Well, I did it because of the economy, my family, my wife, my stripper girlfriend. No, you do it because you choose to do it. And it's not until I really firmly believe that it's not until a criminal really understands that he chose to break the law and victimize people that a criminal can actually repent and, and move forward and try to do some good and, and try, to, try to find some sort of redemption. I don't think you can find redemption until you really realize that you actively choose, regardless of your background, that you actually choose to victimize someone. Do you think that would only come after they've been caught and spent time in jail? I don't think, see, with me, it was not actually the jail. What happens with me is I was married for nine years, lied to my wife, the enti- my, my first marriage, I lied to her the entire nine. It took her three years to find out that I was a criminal. The next six years were me saying, I've stopped, I will stop, I'm going to stop. You like spending the money, don't you? Until she figured out that I wasn't about to stop and she leaves. So that fear of being abandoned became real for me. So that, that kind of starts my, my whole redemption process right there. So my wife leaves, I go through this horrible depression, get suicidal, everything else, end up picking up the phone and calling a psychologist because I know I'm getting suicidal. Start seeing a psychologist. She tries to get me to stop breaking the law. She actually tried to get me to go into, uh, into real estate. And I was like, hey, is there any difference between that and crime? Yeah. But, uh, she, um, what happens is I was 30, 34 at the time. And uh, I didn't start drinking until I was 34. So that's, yeah, I'm a criminal, but I never used drugs or drunk, drank alcohol until I was 34. But um, I get lonely one night, and I had never been to a strip club, and I'm like, ah, let's try that. So I walked in, and I'm literally the guy who falls in love with the first stripper that he sees. So fell in love with her, found out, um, found out she was addicted to coke. Not only was she addicted to coke, but she was prostituting herself for the cocaine. And... I kind of lost it at that point. I was, um, I got it in my head. I guess I got it from head, uh, my head that if I could fix her, I could fix me. And if I just kept on going, we'd you know, have that love. And that was just not the case at all. Um, 
you know, now I understand that when someone is addicted to something, they can't love anything else except the addiction. But uh, then I didn't understand that. And I thought I could fix people. And I understand now you can't fix anyone but yourself. And you're lucky if you can fix yourself. But my sister ends up disowning me because of that. I got, uh, I got engaged to Elizabeth. That was the, the dancer. I got engaged to and everything else. I was arrested February 8th. 2005, three weeks before I was supposed to marry her. My sister ends up disowning me because of that relationship. So I go through this entire arc of, uh, you know, getting arrested, ripping off the Secret Service, going on a cross-country run, making the most wanted list, going to prison, then escaping from prison. Denise won't take a phone call or anything else during that entire time. I get caught after the escape. I'm in Lexington, Kentucky at a county jail where they've got a 10-minute visitation. My dad comes and visits, and he's like, can I do anything for you? And I'm like, yeah, you can tell my sister I said I love her. And dad gets on the phone, calls Denise. Denise is pregnant in Hickory, North Carolina, gets in the car and drives those, you know, six, seven hours to come see her dumbass brother to tell me she loves me. And uh, I don't see her again for five years after that. And that that's the big turnaround for me right there. It took two and a half years behind the fence in prison for me to really come to terms to understand that, you know, I didn't break the law because of my sister or my family or my wife. I broke the law because I chose to. So I got out in 2011, no taste whatsoever to, to break the law. Um, didn't want to get online. Didn't want to do anything. I had, uh, I was on probation. I couldn't touch a computer. So I had job offers from Deloitte consulting for cybercrime consulting, had job offers from no before, phishing simulation training, a couple of payment processors as well. I couldn't take those um, because you can't touch a computer. I got to the point I was trying to apply for fast food jobs. Couldn't take those because that's a computer. So I'm like, okay, what about a waiter's position? Probation officer's like, no, that's a computer and credit cards. You're an idiot. So I, I couldn't get a job, literally could not get a job. I was bumming money from my dad, from my sister. I, was, I had a roommate that was taking care of half the rent with me. I was on food stamps so I could eat. Didn't have any money at all and uh, had a cat. I had this, uh, this little guy. He was a few weeks old. And I had enough money to feed my cat. And uh, I didn't have enough money to buy toilet paper. So I go to the dollar store one day and I bought the cat some food. On the way out, they had a kiosk that had toilet paper there. And that was, that was the first crime that I committed when I got out right there. Um, I'm lucky that what happened was is my wife now, Michelle, I'd had a friend put an ad up on, on one of these dating sites, as a matter of fact, put plenty of fish. Had a friend put up an ad on that, and she contacts me, and I was given that, you know, that classic prison pose where you're not smiling or anything. She messages me, and she's like, why aren't you happy in your picture? And I'm like, that is my happy face. <laughs> so we start talking, and uh, the first meeting that we had, we were in Destin, Florida, and we're on the beach. And uh, the first time we physically met, we're sitting on the beach, and 10 minutes into the conversation, She's like, well, what's the worst thing you've ever done in your life? And I looked at her, and I'm like, well, I just got out of federal prison. And she chuckles, and she's like, no, 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 seriously, what's the worst thing? And I'm like, I just got out of federal prison. So I told her everything about me, and uh, we went through the date that night. And at the end of the, day, end of the date, I'm like, look, I said, uh, I like you. I'd like to continue seeing you. You're going to go home tonight. You're going to Google me. And she's like, no, I won't. I'll, not, I'll not do that. And I was like, I promise you, you're going to go home, and you're going to look me up. She's like, no, I won't. Well, she goes home and she looks me up. And uh, she talks it over with her oldest son. He was in the Navy at the time. And he was like, well, is he a nice guy? And she's like, yeah, I like him. He's like, well, as long as he's not breaking the law, 
why don't you go see him? Well, we got in a relationship, and I ended up uh, moving in with her a few months after that. Uh, still couldn't get a job, but once I moved in with her, I finally did get a job. And the only job I could get, there was a guy on Craigslist that was advertising for landscaping services, and he was running the business out of his house. I went down there, and uh, his name was Dustin, and sat down and talked to him about 20 minutes and how I didn't know how to do uh, landscaping. And he's, he's looking at me about 20 minutes into the conversation. He's like, uh, can I ask you a question? I'm like, yeah. He's like, um, are you on the run or something? He said, do you just, this does not seem like the type of work you would do. So I told him, you know, who I was and what I'd done. And he looks at me, he's like, man, uh, I'm just going to have to think about it. So I go home and a couple of days later, he calls me up and he's like, uh, he's like, look, he says, I hire you. Will you actually work? And, uh, I told him, I said, man, if you'll, if you'll just give me a job, I will work my ass off for you. So, uh, he told me to show up the next morning at seven o'clock and I did. I'm, and my job was to, uh, it was push a lawnmower. I pushed I would do manual labor. I did 10 hours a day, five days a week, $400 a week. And I was, I mean, I was happy. I was doing something. I was, uh, I mean, I was banging away, you know, and I've, I've never done that before. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I was, I logged some, but, um, I'd come in from, from doing that lawnmower work and I'd pass out, wake up the next morning, take a shower, hit it again. And that, that was my week. And, uh, I was happy, you know, I was, I was actually doing something, and what happens is, is it gets cold. When it gets cold, the job ends. Can't cut the grass when it's cold, it doesn't grow. And uh, that reason I commit crime typically of, you know, having to, I'm the guy who, it's never been enough for me to just tell somebody I love them, I have to show it through, uh, through expensive gifts, you know, through overdoing things in relationships. So that pops its head up. I'm not working, Michelle's the only one that's working, I'm like, you know, I got to do something, I got to do something, I got to. I got to show her that uh, I got to show her that I'm that I that I'm worth it. So I figure at the end of the day that what I can at the least I can do is bring food in the house. So I get online, get some stolen credit card data, start ordering food, and I get caught. I get caught, and I go back to prison for ten months. At the um, at my sentencing on the probation violation, the only people there was the probation officer, the prosecutor, the U.S. Marshals, and Michelle. Well, the judge, too. Michelle stands up, and uh, she, tells, she tells, tells the judge that I'm a better dad to her kids than her, their actual father is. I'm sitting there crying like a baby. The, uh, prosecutor, the prosecutor stands up, and she's like, we think he's a good guy. We think it's a one-time thing, but who knows? Pro- probation officer says the same thing. I go back to jail for 10 months, and... Um, what happens is, is that's when I realized that Michelle didn't need me for what I could give her. She just needed me for me. And uh, I had never had that in a romantic relationship before. The only person I'd ever had that with was my sister. So um, I get out. We get married shortly after I get out. I'm off probation, so I can touch computer at that point. Still can't get a job, though, because, hey, I'm the guy who's stolen everything. And even to this day, Debbie, I know what my my triggers are. I know what it takes for me to go back into committing crime. So I knew it was just a matter of time. I looked at uh, Michelle, and I was like, let me see what I can do. So I signed on to LinkedIn, reached out to this FBI agent. His name's Keith Malarski. He's like an FBI super cop when it comes to cybercrime. He he retired last year. But was the best, up until his retirement, was the best cyber agent in the United States, probably the world. Reached out to him, and I was like, hey, I just want you to know I, I respect every single thing you did. I think you did a great job. 
no hard feelings. You are outstanding. By the way, I'd like to be legal. And uh, Keith responded within two hours. Took me under his wing, gave me references, gave me advice. He does that to this day. Uh, today I, I speak at uh, Quantico twice a year. I'm, um, once Keith does that, the head of the Card Not Present group brings me in to speak at their conference. Microsoft comes in and hires me. Uh, today I work with consumer groups. I work with um, AARP. I work with the FBI. I work with the Fortune 50, Fortune 500 companies. As you said, I've got a couple of podcasts as well. I've got a TV show in the works, some other things like that. Um, at the end of the day, my, my thing now is, and it, it's kind of my tagline, but um, I try to protect people against the person I used to be. I mean, I, uh, the only reason I'm able to do what I'm doing, the only reason is that people took me under their wing, gave me a chance to, to use the knowledge I've got for good instead of bad. If that wouldn't have happened, I'd probably be back in prison for 20 years. And I don't think I deserve the life I've got, but uh, I am damn sure thankful for it. Well, you know, it's such, I'm sitting here, I've got such mixed emotions because um, I, mean, I have a son who had some problems with the law, and, and as a mom, and I can see it from your sister and your wife's point of view, you, you want the best for them. Um, and, and you're frustrated when they, there's the, the, get out, the getting out period is, is very difficult. You can't find a job, and, right. and you just need that one person to, to believe in you and to help you to move forward. Um, and when you get it, you appreciate it, and I can feel that coming from you, and I appreciate that. On the other side of you know, my life, the survivor side of a, of a million-dollar fraud, um, right. I... And we've talked about that. It's, it, there's anger because of the deceit and the, I mean, my heart was ripped out of me at, right. along with my money. And I trusted my Eric so much that for two years I gave him my life. And right. I know that there are a lot of survivors out there that in this relationship, and it's, it's social engineering. It's not just online dating fraud. It's all kinds of fraud. Um, we are so taught to trust, and I, I'm trying to think of what you know. What kind of mind? The criminal mind is so different than what I would call the you know the the normal regular mind. Um, you're right. You're still a person. You still you're still the basic person. It's just your mind works differently because you know I'm an entrepreneur and I'm thinking, gosh, so, so much of what you do is what an entrepreneur is taught to do. Right. That, that criminal element <laughs> that is just uh, frustrating for me. And you said something once, um, I, I've heard this, you say this, that perception of reality is more important than reality itself. I mean, that's, I, that's true. I mean, it doesn't. Uh, so so you, you talk about trust, all right? The Internet, technology as a whole, people tend to trust that inherently. We're given a device. We don't understand the device. But we trust it. We trust what comes across that device. That's why fake news today is one of the most dangerous things across the planet, because people trust what they see, what they read that comes across that device. The device itself lays a base level of trust. Okay? And then for a criminal, whether it be fake news, scams, what have you, the criminal layers additional layers of trust on top of that until 
he is able to manipulate someone into believing them. It doesn't matter. What's more important to people, to your listeners today? Is it more important that they actually own the account, or is it more important that someone like me can go and convince the bank that I own the account and steal the money out of it? I would argue that that's the more important thing right now. All right, it doesn't matter what the truth is. It matters what I can convince someone of. Same thing with fake news. It doesn't matter what the truth is. It matters what I can get someone to think about it. All right, same thing with your accounts, anything else like that, or dating fraud. It doesn't matter what the truth is. It matters what I can convince someone of. That's, that's the reason cybercrime happens. If, if people were to really take the time to objectively evaluate everything that's going on, those phishing emails, those phone calls that are coming in, anything else like that. If you take the time, step back, just disassociate yourself from what's going on. You, you talked about in our interview that we did, you talked about a buddy. That buddy allows you to have that objective viewpoint because it's when it becomes subjective that things start to go south really quickly. So you need to keep that objective viewpoint. It's like Reagan said, and I, I, I like my favorite quote from Reagan is, trust but verify. I believe in that because I used to be this criminal, but I'm still this optimist type guy. I believe that you trust everyone out of the gate, but but you have to verify everything that they're saying. If we live in a world where we're constantly scared of everything, I think that's a horrible existence. I think we have to be optimistic, but don't trust anyone without verification. So yeah, you tell me you're this guy. Okay, I'm going to trust you immediately, but you know what? I'm going to need some verification on that as well. And that's, you know, as a former intelligence officer with the Air Force, I, I, I attempted to do that. But um, right. when I, what I call the pink flags, when they came up with the things that didn't quite sound right, he always had a sure. plausible reason. He always convinced me that what I, what I found was not true, you know. Yeah, and you're, you're dealing with someone, so this guy – Obviously, by, by him being able to do that, this was not his first rodeo. No. All right, he was an experienced person on this. He knew the, he knew the nuances. He knew exactly what, what people that he was trying to victimize, what their, their responses were going to be, what they were going to try to look for, because he had been through that before. It's a learning process. It's basically the, 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 the university of scams. And the way you do that is trial and error. You start, you read some, you know, today you go on one of these forums, these marketplaces, and you learn from the other people there who have been through that school. So they're like instructors. And they teach you how to properly commit fraud or cybercrime or what have you. Um, and then you plug it in and you start doing it yourself and you find out those nuances as well. But it, it's a learning process for for everyone across the board, not just for the scammers, but for the people they're trying to victimize. Well, that's true. And they, they don't work alone, right? Because in my situation, um, there were some times at night when I'd be on Yahoo Chat and I would have a, an open chat with, with Eric, that was his name, and then, then I would have sure. one open with his attorney, Peter, and then there was another one with his sister and son in England. You know, I'd be writing to three different people, or I thought. I don't know if it was all right. him, if it was three different people, or how does that work? Well, that's that's one of the things that we found we found out with Shadow Crew and Counterfeit Library. Just, just to break down the way cybercrime as a whole operates, okay? There are three necessities of cybercrime. Those necessities are gathering the data, committing the crime, and then cashing out. So 
All three of those necessities have to work in conjunction. If they don't, the crime fails. Why even try it? The problem from a criminal point of view is that a single criminal is not good in doing all three things. He's good in doing one thing, sometimes two. Very rarely can he do all three. So that's why you have these marketplaces, these forums that people read about in the news and everything else. They allow that one specific criminal to network with other criminals who are good in areas where he or she is not. So with these scams that you're talking about, one guy doing the scam is not nearly as effective as a group of people doing the scam. So you have to think about wherever this guy was, and, and I, I forgot where you said that this year's was located, was but wherever he was. I found out okay, later. so he's in Nigeria. They're, they're very good about networking together in Nigeria. Uh, so he's, he's manipulating you. He's got associates that are getting online at the same time that are manipulating you, saying that they're children or parents or what have you, brothers, sisters, what have you. So he's got this whole network of people. They've got their story together. When I was uh, doing credit card fraud and things like that, I would have a notebook on each individual victim. I would have a notebook and you know, you'd have tabs and you'd flip to each victim so, so when a bank called and needed information, it was just right there in front of you. You could reference whatever questions were coming through. Scammers on that side do the exact same type of thing. So they've got their story together, they've got their plot outline, everything else. They network together because at the end of the day, he's needing cash from you. That's what he's wanting is he's wanting cash. Well, that becomes, these days, that becomes the hardest part of the three necessities of cybercrime. How do you cash out? That's why you see a lot of scammers when they call or something like that. They want gift cards because financial institutions, even though they still suck, they've gotten a lot better at identifying the types of fraud that are coming by and freezing accounts before the scammers can actually withdraw all the money. So scammers are wanting to get that money out as quickly as possible. So a lot of them use gift cards, prepaid cards, uh, bank accounts, things like that. The problem is, is that maybe for your Eric or for other people out there, that scammer that's so good about social engineering you online or over the phone, he may not be very good about setting up bank accounts and knowing how to launder the money out. So he's having to rely on other people to do that. So while, you know, and, and understand, I think we talked about that before as well, you know, you're talking about somebody, they may spend years manipulating you into sending cash over. And while, you know, a few that for you is a lot of money, but a lot of the times these scammers, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's a whole lot of, they put in a year and a half to scam me out of ten, twenty thousand dollars That How is that possible? How does that make, make economic sense? Well, it makes economic sense because that much money over there is a lot of money. A lot of money. So it's worth it. And it's not just one victim. It's, many victims that they're manipulating at the same time. It's not just you they're talking to. They're talking to multiple people, and it's, that's their income stream. That is their career. That's their business. That's what they do. Well, it's devastating emotionally. It is. And uh, so where's the conscience? You know, I, when you're in the middle of, the, middle of that, is there any conscience? I mean, what are you thinking? So, and I, I've been asked this question a few times. A lot of people call criminals, sociopaths. Now, I served seven and a half years. A sociopath is someone who does not recognize the difference between good and bad, all right? If you have somebody that justifies their crimes, now, your Eric justified his crimes by saying, I did it because of the economic structure, because of my upbringing, blah, 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 blah. So he's, he's trying to justify that. So he knows the difference between good and bad. But you mentioned that one of the differences between the criminal mind 
and the legitimate or the, 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 the good guy. And one of those differences is, for me, I think, our morality, our ethics are always situational. It depends on the situation. So if we can convince ourselves as criminals that, well, I'm doing it for my family. I'm a good guy in the real world. I'm just a bad guy online. That's, that's the kind of uh, justification I used. So if you're, if you're con- able to convince yourself of that, that moral compass tends to point whatever way you need it to to steal money. And that's why, I'm, that's why I said earlier, for me, it's very important that you recognize that you chose to actively victimize people. If you can't do that, I really don't believe that you can ever find redemption or, you know, really feel sorry for what you've done to people. I, I just don't think that's possible for you to do that. Um, so to answer your question, as far as sociopaths, I was around, I was at prisons that had a few thousand inmates. I probably met two real sociopaths, people who simply did not know the difference between good and bad. Uh, the other inmates that are there, they knew the difference. They just chose to break the law and victimize people. And they got caught. Well, you know, you and, and I can talk forever. I so find this engaging. Um, we do have guests on the show. I'm going to open this up to, to Q&A. If anybody would like to ask uh, Brett a question, hit star six and you can come on and I'll let you in. Um, it's just it's such an intriguing um, topic, and, and we talked earlier uh, about elderly crime, and, and my father got hacked the other day on his AOL account, and it right. just irritated him to no end. Um, that's happening all the time, and, and we tried to explain to my mom that, Mom, this is part of life. And she's like, but why? Yeah, if you don't mind, let me, uh, let me walk through that real quick, because I think it's important for your, uh, for your listeners. So there are three things that all the listeners need to do today if they've not, okay? The first thing is to freeze the credit of every single person in your house. That includes the children because children are the number one victims of identity theft. One in four, 25% of all kids will be a victim of ID theft. So credit freezes became free September 18th of 2018. Freeze the credit. That doesn't mean monitor. I mean, it doesn't mean credit alerts freeze the credit because when you contact the credit bureaus and you have to contact all three, when you contact the credit bureaus, they're going to try to sell you a credit alert package or say, yeah, you don't need the credit freeze. Just do the alert. No, no, no. Freeze the credit. It's free. Do it. Okay. Also monitor your accounts. Now, when I say monitor your accounts, I mean all accounts. That's your email, your retail, your tax, your credit card, your bank accounts. Monitor all the accounts. Place alerts on the accounts wherever you can. For example, Discover Card has a $0 alert, meaning that if a criminal just gets your card information and he tries to ping it to see if the card's still alive, you get a text message saying, hey, someone's trying to use your card, and then you can do something about it. The final thing, and this is what, what happened with your father, most people out there, most of the listeners, use the exact same password and login across multiple websites. Now, here's what happens. I can, I can send out a phishing email that looks like it comes from Bank of America. And you'll look at it and you'll say, ah, that's obviously a phishing email. I'm not going to fall for that. Because your level of awareness is high enough for your financial accounts that you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm vigilant. I'm not going to fall for this. But if you're using the exact same password for your Hulu account, is your level of awareness the same? No. You're going to get that same email that looks like it comes from Hulu, and you're going to say, Hulu, does anyone even watch it? They've only got The Handmaid's Tale. That second season kind of sucked. 
So your level of awareness is not nearly as high, but if you're using the same password and login, it's an automated program that an attacker like me uses. I go to sleep. It just plugs in those, those password credentials in multiple websites, hundreds of thousands of websites overnight. Wake up the next morning, see what you've got access to. That's probably what happened to your father. It's called credential stuffing. You get the password and login, and you just start plugging it in different places. So use a password it's manager. My mom's like, well, how can you do that. it? I'm like, Mom, it's not one person trying to do it. No, it's automated. Absolutely. Yeah. It's frustrating. Well, the one good thing that came out of it, the silver lining, is that about 100 of my dad's friends reached out to him to make sure he was okay. <laughs> Oh, Outstanding. That was good. <laughs> I love it. All right. All right. We have um, Dr. Tim McGinnis is on asking a question. Tim is the founder of SCARS, and I wanted to introduce him to you anyway, Brett. Um, sure. Tim, Tim, are you there? I am here. Hello, Brett. Hey, Tim. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Pleasure to finally connect with you. We've, uh, we've been uh, dodging each other for a while on LinkedIn, but I'm well, glad that's to, true. to be able to speak with you. <laughs> Um, you know, Brett, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I'm aware of, of your history from a variety of different perspectives. And, you know, what you say about the, the situational ethics is something that we encounter on so many different levels from so many different directions, not only from the scammers themselves. And, and I've had conversations with the government of Ghana. We we interact directly to facilitate arrests of scammers in Nigeria. I talked to um, the director of the EFCC literally weekly through LinkedIn as well. But, you know, it's, it's also one where um, situational ethics applies to law enforcement. It applies to, um, to the victim support communities as well. I've been involved in, in observing cybercrimes now for about 30 years. Uh, mm -hmm. That is to say from the, from the early 1990s in terms of directly observing its impact on victims. But my own background goes back a lot further. And in fact, uh, once upon a time, we found a let's just say a pirate BBS inside of Atari that was being used to sell credit card information. And uh, our own internal security shut that down. So it goes back four decades at least at this, at this stage. Um, one of the things that I always find fascinating about the victims of cybercrime is how readily they throw away their, their ethics, and engage in exactly the same behavior. There's a thing called scam baiting that kind of drives us crazy because victims get trapped in their own anger and hate and, and become scam baiters as a part of vigilantism. In other words, they, they not only use their anger and aggression theoretically to go after cyber criminals, but they completely throw out the window their own ethics in the process and do exactly what cyber criminals do. They engage in deception, deceit, uh, social engineering against individual cyber criminals. And in the process, while it could be argued that they're not harming anybody, 
they're actually breaking the law, and they're breaking a handful of federal statutes in the process. Another aspect of this situational ethical challenge is what happens particularly to relationship scam victims that have been fed a story based around a stolen image or a stolen persona uh, where the scammer is impersonating a real person using their photos, whether it's a military individual or someone else. And then once they discover it's a scam, then they engage in, in criminal behavior through cyber stalking and uh, their attempts to track down this real individual. And in many cases, victims can actually make the, the, the real impersonation victim, the person whose photo was being stolen, make their lives absolutely miserable. Victims will report them to the police as being a scammer because they refuse to understand the mechanics of what's going on. But, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to blame victims, but merely to bring this out as a potential topic for, for discussion in that ethics are something that you have to work very, very hard to keep them clear and in focus in the work that you do. And I firmly understand how, you know, it can take a while to really gain that perspective. I've worked in many industries where, particularly in, uh, as a consultant in large-scale e-commerce companies, and it's, it's astounding how quickly organizations also let the lines blur between what's honest and ethical and what's not. And when you look at the outsourcing industry, and the outsourcing industry in the early 2000s when more than half of that industry just disappeared and what was left, a big percentage of them switched to criminal activities, particularly in India and Africa, where they used all of their training and skills and technology that they used for the outsourcing industry, turning it towards various forms of socially engineered cyber-enabled crime that their ethics went out the window in a heartbeat. So my, my question, I guess, for you is how do we as a community of, of crime prevention preven professionals, yourself in that role, our organization in that role, as well as being a victim's assistance organization, how can we best focus on meaningful impact on the criminal organizations themselves? Uh, for example, one of the things that we learned um, about, oh, maybe six, seven months ago, that many of the cyber criminal organizations around the world, in fact, use a piece of software, which is their preference. They use Salesforce to keep track of victims sure. and to be able to communicate in their organizations and pass victims back and forth. So just like the platform Facebook is an enabler of cyber, cyber crimes, we've heard that Salesforce is as well, which is an irony because the founder of Salesforce actually used to work for me back in the early 80s. But sure. so what is your suggestion about how to 
focus on meaningful activities rather than run around with meaningless activities? That's a, now that is a question. Um, let's, let's backtrack just, just a second on some of the stuff that you said. Um, situational ethics. I think it's important that we first understand that situational ethics is not always a bad thing. All right. If you if you're going up for sentencing, and you've got someone that, I mean, that is obviously repentant, coming in for sentencing. And so, sure, all all people who are in front of a the judge, they they cry, they get watery eyes. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, typically you're sorry for being caught, not for the crimes that you committed. But every now and then, you'll get someone up there who, their history, their their background, things like that. It's it's we empathize with them. We we put forward that situational ethics instead of just the, the concrete morality. So situational ethics is not always bad because people, have, people are different. They have different stories. Um, I mention that because right now we've got, again, 40 million Americans that are out of work, 40 million Americans that can't make their house payments, their car payments. They can't feed their kids. Now, not all 40 are going to be committing crime, but there's a percentage there that all of a sudden, because they used to have that compass, that moral compass that pointed directly north, but now they're going to have a moral compass that's like, you know, i got to feed my family. i got to pay my bills. I'm going to lose my house. So some of those people are going to have situational ethics. It's understandable. Some of those people are going to get caught. They're going to go in front of a judge. And I think it's important at that point that we do have situation, situational ethics as well when those people go to be sentenced, because those people are not people who would typically commit crime. It's just the pressure. It's like Creasy's fraud triangle. It's the pressure that's came in and has helped tip that compass away from the north. Okay, so I think that's important. I think it's important too that we realize that the victim is never responsible for the crime that's perpetrated on them. It's always the criminal's fault. We tend, you mentioned victim blaming a few minutes ago. We tend, a lot of people tend to blame the victim by saying, oh, it's, why, how could you fall for something like that? That's stupid. I would never fall for that. I would never click on that. I would never have went out and got $70,000 worth of gift cards from Sephora, as happened last year with someone. We, we tend to blame the victim. We say it's ignorance, stupidity, they're not educated, what have you. That has nothing to do with it. If you look at spear phishing, so phishing overall is 92% of every single attack begins with a phishing attack. Spear phishing is about 86% successful regardless of the person that is the, victim, that is the target. I don't care how educated, how uneducated, how rich, how poor, how important, how unimportant, Spear phishing is still about 86% successful. The reason is not because of the stupidity of the victim. It's because you're dealing with a social engineer who understands the technology and the psychology enough to manipulate that person into handing over one of four things, information, access, data, or cash. Okay? So it's important that we start to change that, that discussion from blaming the victim, from saying that it's stupidity or ignorance that results in a lot of these scams. It, we, have to, we have to change that discussion, first of all, because what tends to happen is 
someone's a victim of a scam. They feel stupid. They think their family's going to think they're stupid. Their friends are going to think they're stupid. Their coworkers, they're going to think they're stupid. So they tend to internalize that instead of mentioning it, instead of complaining to law enforcement, instead of talking to their support network to work through that. They internalize it, and it just gets worse and worse. So I think it's important that we change the discussion. I think it's also important, how do you combat cybercrime? I mentioned before that a lot of these criminals – they're simply not sociopaths. They know the difference between good and bad. They choose to ignore the difference, all right? Uh, the thing is, is I think that we also, other than educating media, family, potential victims, we also need to start educating the criminals. I think that if you really – and I think that's a utopian idea that I've got, to be honest with you. I think that at the end of the day, it might not do that good, but I still think we have to get forward and – and start talking about these are the victims. Just because you think you're stealing from the government with all the stimulus fraud that's going on right now doesn't mean it's just the government that's the victims. You're taking money away. You're taking that unemployment insurance away from people who are out of work who need that money. So I think we need to start having that conversation as well. I think we need to uh, – my thing is, if you're an adult, you need to go to prison if you're breaking the law. Prison did me a lot of good. I know it would do everyone else a lot of good if they'd go to prison for a while. So minors, I think that a minor needs to doesn't need to go to prison at all, that they need mentorship, they need someone to take them under their wing and guide them on the right path. So I think we increase prison sentences, we prosecute, we complain to law enforcement. For law enforcement, you're absolutely right. Um, law enforcement tends to, tends to have situational ethics a lot as well. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but we need some accountability with law enforcement as well. There was, uh, there's been a couple of cases, and I, I absolutely adore the work that the FBI does. I'm fortunate enough that I'm able to uh, work at Quantico. I work with some, some agencies as well and some other stuff, but we need to have, for especially these, these agencies that are in the news right now, we need to have some sort of accountability factor in place. Um, I'm not for... You know, we've got a lot of people saying defund the police. I'm not for taking money away from law enforcement. I'm for properly training and having accountability for law enforcement, which seems to be pretty absent in some instances right now. Um, so the short answer. Sure. On that topic, one of the things I was just going to bring up really quickly relative to law enforcement is um, law enforcement is listening, and particularly when it comes to cyber crimes, you know, one of the things that's happened in the last three years is that every state police in the country um, have been enabled through DHS funding and others to create an actual uh, cyber crimes unit on the state police level. Uh, we're an actual partner with DHS, specifically with CISA. Mm -hmm. um, and also about two weeks ago, uh, we delivered to several thousand law enforcement agencies around the, the U.S., our guide for interacting with, uh, with cyber-enabled crime victims, a uh, guide for law enforcement specifically on that basis that uh, has been very, very well received. Uh, we're in the process of distributing that, that elsewhere as well. Um, could I ask you to make a divergence and talk about the challenge of mules in the time that's left? Because here we have an ethical dilemma where an individual is so deep in their own denial in the manipulation that they have been socially engineered into that they cannot recognize that they are actually a, an accessory uh, to the crimes being committed against other individuals. 
Sure, and you mentioned that we're, we're running short on time. To the listeners out there, if we do run out before I get to your questions or anything like that, you can contact me directly. I'm more than happy to talk to you over the phone, email, whatever, to answer any questions, help you any possible way that I can. Okay, and I'm sure Debbie will give my contact information at the end of the show. Um, money mules. Again, it goes back to those three necessities of cybercrime. The final one, cashing out, because at the end of the day, if you don't put cash in pocket as a criminal, the rest of that work, and there's a lot of work that goes into it, the rest of that work is meaningless. So the most important aspect becomes putting money in pocket. The problem, of course, is that you have to set up accounts. You have to withdraw the money, and it becomes an issue if you're stealing, say you're committing business email compromise, you're stealing $12 million or $30 million. You have that sent to a single bank account. There's no possible way that you can withdraw all that cash in a quick amount of time. So you have to rely on money mules, a, a, a network of individuals who are either complicit, they know exactly what's going on, or they don't, or they don't care what's going on. So the problem, and you mentioned the ones that, that simply don't know, all right? But understand that there are, there are money mules out there. There are people who are setting up bank accounts, who are cashing checks, who are running gift cards, all, this other th all these other types of frauds. There are people who are complicit, who either complicit out of a need or a want. So they want to be money mules in order to gain status or clout within cybercrime communities. Or it's a, it's a money mule out of need. And again, I reference those 40 million Americans right now. They need money. They get an offer on, they see something on Craigslist or Indeed or Monster or coming across on Facebook that says, hey, I need someone to help me out with X amount to, you know, I don't have a bank account, blah, blah, blah. Can I have some money deposited? I'll let you keep 30% or 40% or what have you, or simply receive these packages for me, or whatever that looks like. So the, the criminal is developing a network of people. Now, when I was running Shadow Crew, and that tends to be the exact same way today, the rule was is that a, a relationship will remain viable, and what I mean by that is the, the criminal and the money bill, that relationship will remain in effect as long as it's beneficial for both parties. So as long as the money mule knows that money is, keep, is going to continue to come in, that money mule will continue to forward money to the main criminal. As long as the main criminal knows the money mule is happy with the relationship, that main criminal will continue to funnel money or checks or gift cards to the money mule as well. Um, a lot of people, especially the ones that are not – really aware of, of crime happening or doing it out of need, a lot of people don't understand the consequences of that. Because at the end of the day, that money mule typically is uneducated on how to hide their identity or how to properly funnel money out of accounts and launder money without being caught. So law enforcement is going to show up at your door. Whether you're complicit or not, whether you knew what was happening or not, you broke a law. When that happens, you are going to go to prison. Not only that, but your credit's going to be ruined. You're going to owe money to the bank. You're going to all this other stuff. You're going to owe money to the victims, everything else across the board, because they're not going to catch the main criminal that's over in the Ukraine or Brazil or what have you. They're going to catch you, and at that point, you're going to prison. That's um, you know, I talked about these people that are out of work, and I think it's important, especially right now, it's important that we, uh, we have that conversation that even though times are hard, it's important that we remain vigilant and that we, we choose to do the right thing. 
Um, I think our government has to help us more than they're helping us. I don't think that $1,200 is going to last 10 weeks, as one person said. But um, it's just important that we we band together and we, we help people right now and understand that uh, times are bad, but we don't have to victimize each other in order to uh, to get through it. That is so true. You guys, this is a very interesting discussion, and the money mule is a totally different topic, which we would love to you know bring you back on another time, Brett, to discuss. Um, sure. We're going to have to, because it's after 10, I value people's time, and we're going to wrap this up. Um, I want people to know how to get a hold of you. I've got them, uh, they can reach you at anglerfish.com. Is that right? Sure, that's anglerfish, A-N-G-L-E-R-P, as in Paul, H-I-S-H.com. Also, because I don't know how many listeners you've got out there, but look, if I am not on a stage or consulting or recording a podcast or something like that, you can call me directly, 850-797-0155. Leave me a message, text me, whatever. I'll help you as much as I possibly can. Um, for consumers, for law podcast, enforcement, okay. I don't have any charges. What's your I've got two podcasts. Uh, first podcast is the Online Fraudcast. That's at onlinefraudcast.com. It's also available on iTunes, Spotify, etc. It talks about the first season and a half was merchant fraud, just about retail stores and trying to help merchants. We've recently incorporated all types of cybercrime and fraud. So the last five or six episodes has been handling the types of fraud that most listeners would like to listen to as well. Um, I've also got the Anglerfish podcast at anglerfish.com. It's also on Spotify and iTunes. First season is the Brett Johnson story. Second season started out as interviews. I'm actually uh, rebooting that into a more personal type of thing where we're talking about life experiences and more of the issues that are going on today that people uh, need to listen to and, and hear about. Well, that was a fun one because you interviewed me and we talked for a long time. I did. <laughs> <laughs> and yours is coming out, hopefully. It won't be next week, hopefully the week after. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. So thank you very much. So folks, try to reach out to Brett. He's a great guy. And, uh, you know, as my father said, do you really want to talk to that man? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I do. And I, Thank and you, Debbie. Your last name makes you a brother by another mother, but I'm married to Johnson by, by marriage. Um, All right. Thank you so much for your time. I could, I could really talk to you for a long time. But we're going to stop this now. Um, I want to thank Benfo Complete for sponsoring us. And if you know anyone who has been a victim to fraud or scam, a family member or anybody that's involved in it, please have them report it to anyscam.com or ic3.com, which is the FBI site. And remember to join my Facebook group, Stand Up and Speak Up. We'll have special information and the replays of these shows. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much. I'm going to turn off the recording. If you'd like to stay on for a few minutes, and Brett will be with us for a few more minutes. But until then, we will sure. talk to you all next week. I'm going to record what I recommend... <laughs> okay. What I recommend that people do is to use a password manager, and I don't care what password manager it is. Don't save the passwords in the browser. That's the worst thing you can do, but use a password manager. There's um, Dash, there's LastPass, there's a whole set of password managers that you can use. That takes the, the idea of trying to choose a secure password out of your hands. It changes passwords for you. It logs in for you. The only thing you need to do is remember one main password. All right, That's not a perfect solution but it is the best solution that we have right now. So use a password manager. It makes you much more secure. So freeze credit, monitor accounts, use a password manager. Great. Really Thank good. you so much. Yes, um, one thing that I would like to add in addition is what I really liked about today's and your story 
is that there is always hope and proof that criminals can rehabilitate. And that's the whole idea, you know, of putting them somewhere where they can get the help that they need, you know, so they can come to be the person to help other people and not just scam people. So thank you for that. Well, I want to thank you for saying that. I I truly appreciate it. And I also want people to realize, too, that for me, it it was not just me, but it was enough people that cared about me who, yeah. who wanted me to do good and gave me a chance. I, I really firmly believe that unless I had those people in my life, that I would be back in prison today. So uh, it, it's not just me, but it's, it's also us helping mm-hmm. other people. And, and understanding, too, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer of, of tough love. I truly am. If someone is messing up, it's important to not just continue to enable that and facilitate it, but if it takes it, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with you, like my sister did me when she disowned me. I think that's important that, we, that we're objective and that we realize that sometimes it does take tough love. It's a very hard thing I to agree. do, especially as a parent. Yeah. Yes, it is. I agree. Had to do that. Hey, I have a quick question. When you started telling your story, how difficult was it for you to, to speak up? The first, uh, first two speeches, I lied. I, um, I, I, and what I lied about was um, me violating probation. I didn't want people to know that I went back after I got out. And uh, after that second speech, I think it was in Atlanta, Georgia. After that second speech, I was like, you know what? Don't lie, dude. Don't lie. Don't hide it. Just put it out there. So I got this idea. I was like, you know, if I'm going to do this thing for a living, I want to try to find out something new about myself every single time I, I speak. And to this day, I still try to hold by that. Um, I'm trying to find these little nuances about me. Um, the abuse that I went through as a child, I'm, I'm 50 years old now. The first time I was able to speak about that publicly was last year when I was 49. It took me to 49 to be able to do that. It took me till I was 49 years old to, uh, to confront my mother about it. never you know, confronted her about the abuse she put me and my sister through, and it took until last year for me to finally do that as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know I'm on the right path. You know, it's been a long journey, but uh, like I said, I'm I'm, I'm damn thankful for uh, for the life that I've been blessed with these days. And uh, I was asked recently, I was given a presentation at USC, and a student asked me if I regretted anything, and it took me a minute to answer that, and. Uh, he asked if I regretted anything or would I go back and do anything different. And today I realize, it's, it's like today, that, that everything that I've done or that's been done to me has led to me being who I am today and doing what I'm doing. And uh, I'm happy with who I am. I'm, I like me these days. I regret the, the people that I've victimized. I regret doing that. But um, I don't think that I would go back and, and change anything because I think I'm doing uh, – I have I have trouble with religion, but I think I'm doing exactly what uh, I think I'm doing exactly what God wanted me to do these days. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't I don't think I take anything back. I I totally agree, and uh, I mean the same on the other side. Same with us. Uh, have you ever worried about what people thought about your story? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean I I know that uh, I, I I hell I have trouble with my story. Because I was a career criminal, and now I'm I'm the guy who uses a lot of the knowledge I gained as a criminal to uh, to make money. But I, I know I have to make money, and I try to. Um, I don't think there's any. I can't make amends 
for my past. What I can do is I can make sure that my choices now are for the good, not the bad. So a lot of my, uh, a lot of my uh, motivation these days is to uh, even out those scales. I think I look at my life and I see there's a scale there of all the bad I've done. And uh, I would like to, to leave this world not being the guy uh, remembered as stealing everything, but being remembered as the guy who was able to turn it around. Yeah. So you're the guy behind the smile. My book was The Woman Behind <laughs> the Smile. You were the guy behind the smile. Um, there you, do you go. Do you have an opportunity to speak to guys that have committed the same crimes that are trying to turn their lives around? You know, I, I want that opportunity, but I've not, I've not had the, uh, have not had that yet. Okay. We'll have to get Tim. You're still on. We'll have to get uh, Brett introduced to James, maybe in Ghana. There's a fellow in Ghana that we've been working with that is attempting to work with young men that have been in the business that are changing their lives around. And uh, right, I would love to do that. Years ago, he asked. Um, I don't know if that would work or not, but well, I I think so, but maybe indirectly. So, you know, Brett, there's there's some interesting corollaries and overlaps in the work that we do, and I especially value the fact that um, that you made a decision to go out there and and sort of be a a warrior for good, um, to use your skill sets. The, the situation with scammers in general is that um, the, recidiv- the recidivism is nearly 100% with one exception. Yes, uh, in, in 2017 in December, I sat down and had dinner with a, uh, with a state-level minister for public security in, or for state security in China who had never heard about cyber crimes. And... Over the next 60 days, he intensively investigated it, and they arrested about 3,000 scammers in 2018. To my surprise, they actually executed about 250 of them. <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. That, the, the, the that is a have, solution. <laughs> justice. Yes, the Chinese have no sense of humor when it comes to crime, actually. Right. But in 2019, they got religion in a big way. They arrested 99,000 cyber criminals inside of China. Uh, And by cyber criminals, I mean these were people that were engaged in socially engineered scams against individuals, relationship scams of one nature or another, everything from uh, Macau scams to uh, just any kind of of WeChat-based scam, etc., and of the 99,000, we don't have any hard and fast stats as to how many were executed, but we know a lot of them were. Um, because okay. leadership, they take a very dim view of when they capture entire organizations. But the point that I was making is um, it would be really interesting to develop a, maybe to work together to develop a platform where we could communicate and have conversations directly with the cyber criminals around the world. Um, you know, we're not going to reach anybody in Eastern Europe because the level of organization is significant, and there are very few cracks in their armor. But, you know, we could reach Africans. We could reach Asians. Uh, we certainly could reach Latin Americans as well as Americans that are engaged in cybercrimes of one nature or another, a lot of 
homespun ransomware uh, in the United States and malware as well as phishing. But it would be interesting to see if, if, if they would engage and begin I those agree. conversations. No, I, uh, I, I, it, I certainly agree. Uh, recently, uh, Tim, I've been, uh, I've been talking to a, a set of criminals over on Telegram. I don't know if you've uh, been visiting Telegram yes. yet. My personal feeling is, is that Telegram is the future of cybercrime communities. I, I am extremely impressed with what criminals are doing over there right now. Um, yep. I use my real name, and a lot of criminals are more than happy to engage with me, and we have these, these types of discussions. I think that uh, the platform that you're talking about would be extremely beneficial. I, I, I really do believe, because when you look at a criminal, for him to commit cybercrime, three things have to be inherent. It has to be the willingness, the ego, and the knowledge of how to commit the crime. The willingness, I think, is key. And if we can just start educating, hey, it's this, this thing, that's this idea that you've got that where I'll steal the identity of a 35-year-old, but I won't divert Social Security benefits of a senior citizen because, you know, I don't want to rip someone off. I don't want to hurt someone. I think if we can start to educate people overall of, hey, this 35-year-old that you're victimizing to, you're hurting them as well. There's no such thing as a, a, a harmless crime. You're victimizing people whether you're stealing income tax returns, stimulus checks, uh, carding people, doing refund fraud, synthetic fraud, what yep. have you. They're still victims. And we have, I think that it's important because, again, most of these guys are not sociopaths. I think it's important that if we can really get that conversation out there, that that moral compass will tend to point more toward the north on these guys. They'll, they'll sit there and say, you know, I thought it was victimless. It's not. And I, I firmly believe that a lot of these guys do have you know, some some morals there. I, 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 that may be, you know, some sort of utopian idea. I may just be naive on that, but I, I, I do believe we could do some good on that. You're hitting the Pollyanna button, me. I am, I am. <laughs> do you think, you know, one of the things that, that I find fascinating is the lack of real organization on this particular topic. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's there's over 20,000 Facebook pages that talk about scams of one nature or another. It, fully 50% of them are actually created by scammers. But of the other 50%, it's all just wheel spinning. It's just raging at the machine. It's, it's ineffective make work of one nature or another. And what I actually had planned for 2018, but shelved that idea was to utilize my organization of which Debbie is a part uh, one of our one of our directors and, and key leaders um, is actually to try and put together a a conference that specifically talks to individuals and to industry about the prevalence of social engineered scams one of the things that you know, I, I, I want to backtrack on is a, there, there's a couple of things that are absolutely correct. Um, victims do not report these crimes. Uh, everybody in, in the industry admits that only about 5% of victims are reporting it, so the numbers are massively skewed. Until you start talking to people like McAfee who talk about, you know, the $6 trillion per annum number by the end of 2021, which I firmly believe. But 
when you talk about phishing being the dominant form of attack, actually it's not. It's only the dominant form of a traditional cybercrime attack. When you're talking about cyber-enabled attacks, which is the other side of the equation, which is person-to-person, social media is the dominant mechanism. It's reaching out to people who, are, who utilize that inherent stranger trust to open the door, then confirmational bias, all the forms of manipulative techniques that social engineers engage in. And, and I myself am a social engineer because I helped build a multi-billion dollar e-commerce company. You don't get that level of sales without employing social engineering in your product presentation and the language that you use to describe products. Social engineering is something that's been with us for 100 years. Um, my favorite aspect of that is most people don't know that one of the key architects of social engineering as a science was a guy by the name of, uh, of Vladimir Ilyevich Lenin. The Soviet Union was founded <laughs> on social engineering. So, yep. you know, and, and, and one of our presidents at that same period of time was an expert at it. Woodrow Wilson was an Absolutely. expert at social engineering himself. So, you know, I wonder it would be worth exploring the opportunity to, just like the dating industry has their conference, whether it would make sense to try and bring together people from, from government, people like yourself, people like me and Debbie, to come together and begin a real active presentation and dialogue about these topics. Because the one thing that we see, we're not reaching the audiences. Even corporate America is oblivious to what's really going on out there until they've been hit. I would agree. Um, just to point out, you know, you had pointed, uh, talking about all the articles, all the write-ups, all that. To me, the Internet lends itself to complaining. You know, there, there's a lot of yeah. that. There's a lot of chatter with very little action. And I think that uh, one of the most interesting things that I've read recently, especially because of, of the racial stuff that's going on in the, in the United States right now, there's a writer, his name is Ibrahim um, X. Kendi. And what he does is he argues that there are two types of people. There's only two actions, that you can either be racist or you can be anti-racist. So it's an action-type mindset. Uh, what I would say for overall cybercrime is that if you're sitting down and you're simply writing about something, that you're part of the problem, that you either need to Agreed. be doing something of action or you're not. If you're simply writing, complaining, excuse the language, but bitching about something, you're not doing any good at all. Um, the conference I think that you're talking about, I think, it'd be, I think it would be extremely good to start getting that, raising that self-awareness out and, and have something that's action-oriented instead of having these security companies coming in. And you know, we have security companies there, but a lot of security companies, they thrive on painting the attackers as these upper-tier computer criminals that are uncatchable, these specters, these ghosts. I think it's important that we be true. But, but they are catchable. That's the whole point. They certainly are. They certainly are. Uh, and they're not very sophisticated. I mean, you talk, we talk about social engineering. Without social engineering, cybercrime falls on its face. The, the right. tools that are out there, everything else, it, they, they, ransomware is useless unless you have a social engineer that's good enough to get it installed on someone's system. 
Same thing, business email yep. compromise is a social engineering effect. Same thing for phishing. Same thing for the social media uh, reach out, uh, that type of phishing, that hack like there that you're looking at. All that's social engineering. So I think we have to have that conversation and, and get it out there and start talking about raising the awareness, educating both the victims, the media, I'm sorry, educating all the victims, media, security companies, criminals as well across the board. I think as we raise awareness across the board as well, we can start getting those numbers down. Also, you know, we talk about that um, the, the organization, that lack of organization is not just on, on, online, but it's also within the institutions themselves. We've got from, right. the, from the privatized sector, you've got the, you've got the financial institution, the merchant, and the consumer. All three of those are siloed within themselves. They don't really communicate that much outside of their own little silos. All right? Same thing for law enforcement. You've got federal, state, and local. A lot of the times they have no idea which jurisdiction or what agency or anything else should be handling that. So we need to start educating law enforcement, the privatized sector, the individuals across the board, all this stuff. And I, I think that taking actions like that, because right now cybercrime, it started out as individuals. It moved into its own business. It's now its own economy. You can no longer arrest oh, your way in, in fact, out of cybercrime. It is, the world's, it is the world's largest crime. It encompasses Absolutely. everything else and is larger than right. terrorism, human trafficking, and drugs combined. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we, I think that uh, having conferences like that and discussions and actually getting people collaborating and networking, one of the big, big pluses for criminals, criminals are open source. They exchange information freely and train each other. The good guys still don't know how to simply talk to each other across those lines. And that's, that's part of what we need to be doing is, is having that discussion, discussion, training on collaboration, everything else across the board. And uh, we really need to do that. I'd be more than happy to, to start working on that and trying to, to get this conversation going like that. The collaboration... Good. Have you, ever, have you ever talked to the, uh, to the director of the UN Office of Drugs and Crime? Uh, I think I'm hooked up with... Maybe you, did, maybe you didn't even know it existed. I, I so, think I've spoken with him a couple of times. I'm not quite sure, Tim unbelievable incompetence now the folks at europe <laughs> they get it they get it yes they do um, yes we're they do. actually wired into about 60 different law enforcement agencies around the world and you know one of the things that we built because we had to because you know fbi ic3 for example is a it's a black hole reports go in and they never go anywhere they're not right. communicating with the RCMP or, or other countries, national police departments. The FBI doesn't communicate regularly with the AFCC in, in Nigeria, for example. They just stroll in once a year and feed them, here's 100 scammers and, and we want you to arrest them and we'll extradite them. That's about the only level of cooperation that other countries get from the FBI. Europol and Interpol have done a really good job, but you know countries like Malaysia, they get no support from anybody, but yet they're rock stars when it comes to arresting scammers. Thailand, Singapore, the same. So I think you know, maybe it's too grandiose, but I really believe that if we built it, they would come. And we could begin to actually have meaningful conversations about how to 
dismantle these organizations, just as we did with terrorist organizations. We know it's possible. I agree. I agree. And I, I love the uh, I love the Field of Dreams reference because I've used that since I built Shadow Crew. I mean, if you do build it, if there, if there is a demand, and there is, I mean, most, most institutions, most law enforcement agencies, they know that need to collaborate. They know that need to work with each other and to try to dismantle these, these criminal groups and enterprises. If you build a platform like that, whether it looks like a conference, something online, forum-based, whatever that is, if you build that, people will use it. It's just that right now that, that mechanism is not there. And uh, since, since we're talking about that kind of stuff, what I actually like, and I've been thinking about that from a merchant point, but you bring up an idea of, of bringing it across the board, and I like that even better. Uh, there's this thing, the DNS blockchain. I don't know if you've seen this or been using it or not, but some criminals are using this right now in order to kind of validate the identities of people who are visiting their platforms. Uh, one of the big ones right now is jstash.bazaar. He bought part of the, the Equifax database that's being, that was stolen. Um, and he does credit card sales, uh, credit card dumps, PII lookups for criminals, yep. everything else. Uh, yep. what, what DNS blockchain does is it allows him, once someone signs into the site, only that device and that individual can ever access that specific account again. So we could set up something like that. Uh, that way everything is, is you know, across the board. We're not allowing criminals in unless we want criminals in uh, to have those types of discussions. But I think that uh, there, there are ways to do this where we could collaborate. You know, people would come in and, and freely exchange information, work with each other, we could get uh, raise self-awareness across the board with uh, institutions, law, and law enforcement, and the individuals across the spectrum as well. I think that uh, we definitely need to be talking about this. I, I agree. So um, why don't we have a conversation at some point in the near future in terms of you know, starting as a, an independent forum? We're happy to provide that. We've got Okay. A baker's dozen of our own websites, and I'm very long in the tooth when it comes to being able to bang out websites really <laughs> high-level and quickly. He's prolific. He's very prolific. Uh, <laughs> as, as I tell people, my first tablet was made of stone, which yeah, you is probably getting really tired of hearing. <laughs> but, um, but Scars would be happy to create this, but I think it's important that that it be a collaborative effort, that it isn't just a SCARS, it's, it's an alliance of some nature to begin these conversations. And we can bring, um, you know, DHS, CISA into the equation. You've got contacts with the FBI, et cetera. Um, we've got contacts with, you know, Council of Europe, Europol, uh, Russian FSB, uh, Ministry of State Security in China. I'm not sure I would bring into this uh, sure. because they don't play well with others. But, you know, we can invite uh, the EFCC from Nigeria, probably no one else in Africa. But, right. you know, I think if, if we can begin a forum for conversation, um, and ironically, there may be a strange platform that would be perfectly suited, which we use as our corporate portal. It's a platform called Workspace that's published by Facebook. Okay. Um, that is extraordinarily good for this kind of interaction. Um, 
so why don't we have a conversation about this offline and see where that can go. And, you know, our organization will be quite happy to aid in your promotion as shamelessly as we possibly can. <laughs> and um, because, Again, and we're, we're, you know, we're I, I, I'm not a believer in non-invented here. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Let, let's do it. Um, I am, I'm actually free all next week. If you'd like okay. to, uh, and hey, you're in Florida, right? Yeah, he's definitely. I am. Where in? I'm in Birmingham. Where in Florida are you? I'm in Miami. And I'm near West Palm. Yeah, I can't take that drive. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hmm, no, I, I would but, drive but, six, seven hours. <laughs> yeah, Florida's a um, big at the south end. Right, but you know, we could all convene in Orlando, say, for example. That's true. Yeah, I know I'll be in Orlando in September. Maybe I can make, take a trip before that. Um, or do it in September when you're here. Let's uh, let me see what my calendar looks like. We're in June. Let me see what my calendar looks like um, mid July. Because September isn't, right. isn't so far away. It's not. It's not. But I would like to because uh, I'm working on a. Uh, we're we're doing a. We're doing some platform work uh, with the FBI right now on dismantling some stuff. And um, this kind of stuff it would be uh, kind of flip side for the good guys. And that would I'd really be could interested it, in Could that. I also suggest to you that in your uh, podcasts and things that you talk about, that you might also bring up something that people are completely oblivious to? Uh, which is the close relationship between cyber criminality and terrorist organizations. That Al Qaeda, for example, uh, prior to 9/11, accrued about 30% of their revenue directly from cybercrime. That's true, and I, I will bring that up. Um, I've got the broadcast coming out Friday, a new one, so but I mentioned that on the broadcast. Because Al Qaeda, in the form of Boko Haram and Abu Nidal is returning to their cybercrime roots, uh, as well as ISIS is beginning to engage in cybercrime. Um, and, of course, we both know that, you know, Iran and North Korea are massive state sponsors of cybercrime. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. But uh, yeah. Would, you, Tim, would you like to come on and talk about that? Sure, because... Uh, I can tell you my scam story, which was a 9-11 scam story. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I, okay, so I have to know, what, what, what happened there? Uh, well, it involved an attempt to assassinate the Queen of Holland. It involved uh, security agencies okay. in the United States and in Holland, and it involved the arrest of a whole bunch of al-Qaeda operatives in Holland. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, let's get you on the podcast. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't prove any of it because it all disappeared. Of course, <laughs> but it's an interesting That's the story. Best way. Yeah, let's let's talk about. I'll um, let me um, send you. An, do I have your email or just your contact on LinkedIn? Um, you can contact me through LinkedIn, but my email is Dr. Tim, as in D R T I M, mm -hmm. at against scams.org. Easy enough. All right, I'll send you an email out today on that. Um, yeah, let's, let's plan on all getting together. If, if you guys don't mind the, the lack of social distancing, 
let's plan on getting together maybe in, in July if everyone's available. We'll see what the calendars look like. Well, uh, I've already had COVID, I've already had COVID, so I'm not contagious. Yeah, it's the rest of so us. What, so how bad did it hit you? Because I've not talked to anyone um, who's had it yet. All right, so there, there's three aspects to the, the symptomology of this particular disease. The first is what feels for many people like the worst case of flu that they've ever had in their life. Um, so some of our volunteers and, and directors have had it that way. Uh, we had right. one of our people at our sister organization in China called SCARS China, which is based in Guangzhou. We actually had one of our team there die from this. Oh, um, so what happens is you get the flu-like symptoms. Now, in my case, it was very mild, um, okay. not debilitating at all, but it jumped into pneumonia really fast. And I've had gotcha. pneumonia several times in my life, so I'm aware of the symptom, what that feels like. So I reacted quickly, got the antibiotics, because the pneumonia is a bacterial pneumonia triggered by okay. the, 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 um, the death of cells in your lungs, because this is a disease that's very nasty. Um, but it hit me quite mild. So I got pneumonia, got antibiotics, and I was pretty good. But I was also taking a, uh, an ionophore with it. Um, hydroxychloroquine is an ionophore. What an ionophore is, is it's a medication that allows metals to pass through the cellular membrane. Things like zinc, et cetera, they always talk about taking zinc when you have a cold. Right. Does right. very, very little good because none of it makes it into the cell, which is where the virus replicates. So you have to okay. take an ionophore, and the one that I take and have taken for years is a bromeliad-based uh, one that's very mild. But I've also taken chloroquine over the years as a prophylactic against malaria as well. But, okay. So I was taking that along with zinc picolinate heavily when I started to feel the onset of symptoms. So maybe... The, the mild symptoms were related to that. But then about three to four weeks after the first onset of symptoms, everything else had gone away. The pneumonia had gone away. I completed the course of antibiotics. And I had the most bizarre thing happen to me. I'm sitting here at my computer one day, and I lose the ability to read. Oh, geez. Um, I mean, I'm looking at words, and I know that they're words, but I cannot read them. They, they're, and I'm, and I'm struggling bizarre. to even recognize what the letters actually are. So what I See, realized I do that sometimes was, when I have a migraine. So I, I wonder what's going on there with, with the COVID when it's doing that. I had a stroke. That's what it was. Okay. So what but it was a very mild one, and it went away after about five minutes. So what's wow. happening is the virus is leaving a bunch of crap in your bloodstream. Viral okay. debris is one of the natural things that happens once your body starts attacking viruses, is you get a lot of dead viruses floating around and other you know, dead cells and debris in your bloodstream, and it's filtered out by your kidneys and your liver, right? Right. So... What the theory seems to be is that viral debris is causing clogs 
um, clots in your blood. It's not, you know, it's not clotting factor going insane, but it's, it's a combination of the impact of the virus itself causing something called a cytotic storm, which is what kills you in the case of flu. It's your own body attacking you. So these things are combining to produce very small clots that make it into your brain and can do momentary or lasting damages. In my case, right. I went and had a, a, a brain CT scan. They couldn't see anything. And I've been on an aspirin regimen uh, taking a little higher dose of aspirin every single day to help thin my blood. Okay. Because I don't know how long that impact is going to be there. But oh, the so other thing that you have is this? affecting... Um, well, that was about a month ago, so I'm still taking aspirin every day. Okay. okay. So I'd, I'd rather run the risk of an ulcer than the risk of a, of a, of a stroke. No, absolutely. Tim, did you lose your taste? You know, because they say sometimes that you, you can't taste. No, no, did not. I did not. But so I, I that, that could be the, right, but that could be the result of the ionophore that I was taking. So the, the other symptoms that I had were all dead on. Um, abdom sharp abdominal pains, um, minor sore throat, low-grade fever, headaches, nonspecific headaches, um, mild chest congestion and, and difficulty breathing, and then the onset of pneumonia. Uh, wow. The doctors at the hospital wanted me immediately to go into the ICU, and I told them no. Because I know what I know what pneumonia means for me. Just give me sure. uh, give me plain old school penicillin, and I'm good to go. There we go. I did. You wow. know, I, I don't want to take Zithromax, which is the Z-Pack, right. um, if it can be avoided. Because I've taken Z-Pack many times, but Z-Pack is really strong. But sometimes it's better to take an old school. Uh, penicillin-like drug that you take for two weeks rather than the five-day course of z because you're talking chemotherapy, basically. Okay. okay. Now, I was particularly concerned because I had cancer last year. I had st nearly stage four cancer and had a kidney removed and was on chemotherapy for a few months. But I came through it fine, and I came through COVID fine. Wow. <laughs> I tell you, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, I just, um, you're the first person I've talked to that, that has had it. I've, um, I've got a friend over in the UK. His, um, his father-in-law and brother both died of it. Um, but I've, yeah. not, I've not had the opportunity to speak to anyone who has actually went through it yet. Well, the, the belief in the United States right now is that about 15% of the U.S. population has actually had it. Gotcha. So they're just asymptomatic, it, I guess, or what, a lot of them? Most of them are asymptomatic. Okay. And that, see, there's an aspect to this, too, which is that we would have significantly higher um, hospitalizations and, and infectious spikes if a large portion of the population had not already gotten it. What, what's happened, I believe, 
is that this thing came through the country and there are multiple strains of the virus. I probably had one, people in New York had the one that they had in Europe. People in the West Coast have had mild versions also. But my belief is, is that a much larger number of the population have actually had this and as a result decreased its communicability. Right. Now, in China, we all believe for a fact that the Chinese have been lying to us from day one, that the Chinese themselves, the people on the street, you know, they're not able to talk about it much, but they believe that they've had about 100 million cases in China. And one of the things that supports that is when Wuhan, Wuhan was in its most lockdown and the whole country was locked down, right. soccer stadiums throughout the country were being converted into crematoriums where they were piling up the bodies on the soccer field and lighting the entire mass ablaze. That these Did blazes the were visible where they were in showing, every I'm, major I'm a Chinese former, city. Former uh, imagery analyst, they were showing imagery of China where they put up hospitals within two weeks. You know, I thought hospitals and then massive burial plots that they could see from overhead photography now. So right. yeah, that's coming out. Um, in in uh, in Guangzhou. There were six or seven of those emergency hospitals, but they also converted hotels into yeah. hospitals. And that was one of the ones that collapsed, actually, was a hotel is built on a basic weight loading, which isn't really very high, because right. you've got basically one person per room. But if you put 20 people per room or, or 20 times the normal capacity, that's where that one building collapsed. Yep. Of course. Of course. Um, the, the Chinese actually have a, a peculiar dichotomy. Their healthcare system is not much better than ours was in the 1950s. <laughs> they have very low per capita capacity. If you go into a Chinese hospital now, you actually have to bribe someone to get a bed. Otherwise, you're sleeping on the floor. <laughs> Oh wow! Jeez, jeez, jeez. So okay, so you're more educated on this than I am. So uh, how much longer do you think we're going to be going through this until we're able to, you know, achieve some source, some sense of normalcy? Well, we didn't get a va- we didn't get a vaccine for the Spanish influenza, and that lasted for three years worldwide. Right. So now in the United States. In the United States, the good news is we have all the epidemiological data from, from 1917, 18, and 19. So we saw the spike curves for all of the major cities with the exception of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was because we had the returning U.S. soldiers who were coming back after the armistice in World War I. So we had the peak that occurred normally then we had a second peak in Philadelphia with the returning soldiers. However, um, you know, the estimates were that it was about 500,000 fatalities as a result of the flu, but yet it was probably as high as 5 million fatalities in the U.S. from secondary effects and, 
and indirect causes from the flu. I mean, we had whole towns where every adult in the town died. So we had actual starvation as a side effect in the United States with the Spanish influenza. The point being, there's two things that are going to constrain this virus. It's going to mutate away, which the Spanish influenza did, and it seems like it's already mutating away, maybe faster than we ever imagined. So that could take it away, but it could also bring it back much more deadly because one of the things that people don't know is SARS 2003 had a 27% mortality rate. Yeah, I didn't know that. It just was not easily communicated. Okay. So very few people got the disease, but 27% of them died from it. Right. The the fatality rate on this puppy is only about twice what flu is, but it's but it was initially very communicable, as communicable as the flu is. But right. it seems to be dying down, both because of social distancing and the asymptomatic immunity barrier, but it could also be mutating away. But they're the other talking, is they're th- talking about it coming back though with all of these protests and everything else, the the massive, you know, congregation of people. So they're looking in the next couple of weeks to see it rise again. We've already seen the first here. You know that Miami and Pine Beach counties aren't opening up fully yet. Right. Right. We've we've already seen the first hints of a rebound spike because of this. Memorial Day. Stupidity. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, with the protest, I mean, I expect it to go crazy. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, you know, one of the things about protests is, is think back to 1968 and 72. You're old enough probably to remember those vaguely. He may not be. Uh, I, I, yeah, I was born in 70, but I, I certainly, uh, I'm well versed on, like, on that stuff. I'm a big okay guy anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, a little bit. I, I'm, I'm several thousand years old, so, but... <laughs> Um, you know, I had my DNA checked um, <clears throat> about a year ago, and it said that I'm that I'm like one fourteen thousandth Tyrannosaurus Rex. So, yeah, so I'm go. actually thinking of having myself <laughs> declared as an endangered species. There you go. <laughs> um, but I think that the protests will burn themselves out if the organizers of the radical elements are rooted out quickly. We didn't do that in the 70s. So all of the 70s were a freaking nightmare because we just didn't do anything about it. I think, well, have you heard about what's happened in Seattle? You know, I've seen the, I've seen some of the videos. Um, I've I've not, I've got a friend up there, but she's not saying, oh, what, what's going on now? Um, So Antifa backed forces and that's the only way to describe them because they're fully weaponized, have uh-huh. seized an area of Seattle and declared it an independent state. Oh, dear, oh, dear Lord. Yeah, I mean, you've got to send somebody governor, in to take care of that. The governor didn't even know it had happened when he was asked by the news media about it. Oh, dear Lord. So odds are today or tomorrow the president will de- will 
enact the Insurrection Act and take action. Well, you know, and honestly, Tim, I got you know, I, I was, I was, I was pissed when he came out and said troops in the streets. But if that's happened, you got to take care of that. <laughs> I mean, you got to take care of it. <laughs> I'm glad my, well, my, I'm glad my boys are in helicopters and, and osprey. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you can't allow that. <laughs> that's tough. I saw pictures oh, of Minneapolis. It looks like they've leveled the place over there. Well, at the end of the day, we have to have stability in order to live our lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I firmly believe that we're going to have a completely different conversation about policing in the future because it has gone in directions that are not complementary to freedom. The militarization right. of the police department, I view as a bad thing. Yeah, you, the police department don't need end wraps. I the other side of the equation. I mean, I, I do too. I mean, I, I agree with Martin Luther King. Riots are the language of the unheard. But at the same time, you cannot have a bunch of people destroying everything on, on the planet. I mean, you can't exactly. have that. Exactly. So I, while I understand See, why the riots are going on, you can't allow that type of violence to take place. But you have to understand one fundamental thing about, about social violence. It's where it comes from that makes all the difference. If it is truly about injustice in society, right. it has a very specific characteristic. But when it is fomented by countries like China funding Antifa directly, that's a different animal. Right. I agree. See, in the 70s, we had something called the Black Panther movement, right? Mm -hmm. They were directly supported by the Soviet Union. Sure. You know, McCarthyism in the 1950s, we all joke about it, but the simple reality was, yeah, we had, we had real communist insurrectionists in the United States. And the hearings blew up and destroyed their credibility in the process because it became a circus. It didn't, it didn't become what it needed to be. Um, most people don't know this, but we had a similar situation in um, 19, you know, 1941. Japanese attacked us, but J. Edgar's FBI had been doing actually a really phenomenal job about tracking the Nazi party in the United States and the Italian fascists. When we built the internment right. camps here in the United States, they weren't built for the Japanese. They were built for the Germans and the Italians. When the ah. Japanese were moved into them, the Germans and Italians were already there. Right, right. So we had an American Nazi party which had 50,000 active members. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, we talk about deep state today. There were Nazis all up and down the stack of government. Sure. So when we went into World War II, the FBI and military intelligence had an incredible problem 
of trying to identify the collaborators, and I'm not talking about sympathizers, I'm talking about collaborators that developed these shadow organizations in the United States that were supporting the Nazis through the Italians and the German communities throughout the country. The Japanese, I'm very sympathetic for, but I have a different perspective on that. I think the government did the right thing with the Japanese because it saved Japanese lives. If the Japanese had not been interned, the American population would have reacted really badly. Well, I mean, that's true. I mean, that, that's certainly true. They would have went crazy. Absolutely. Because it was I agree beginning with you on that. to they happen. You know, it was, right. it was just beginning to happen. But the government was also right. There was collaborators that were spies, and we couldn't tell the difference, sadly enough. Right. Oh, well. Hey, you guys, I'm going to have <laughs> but, to go, but I know you could continue but, the conversation. I'm glad you got so, to meet there. Me too. Yeah, I, it's been a pleasure. Sorry about, uh, you know, the, the, the digressions. Uh, so, Brett, I'd <laughs> oh, love to have no. a conversation I like that. with you uh, next week, perhaps. Yeah, let's do that. I'll, uh, I'll right now. I'll get on uh, on LinkedIn, send out a message right now with my email contact as well, and uh, let's Good. plan on because I, I I think the idea what you're talking about with the conference and the platform, that's something that could do a lot of benefit. I really believe that. Um, and I'm one of these guys, Tim, that if if we're talking business, I like to do it in person. So I would get yep. in in my truck and I'd drive my ass down there to be honest with you. Um, so let's. Um, Let's talk next week, and then we'll uh, arrange to, uh, to to try to meet and everything from there, okay? Excellent. And, and Debbie, I want you involved in the conversation on, Please, on yes. you know, an, or, an event as well, because it, it serves no purpose if we only have it for the elites. We have to be inclusive right. of, of victims and giving them a chance to have well as well as an opportunity to professionalize the anti-scam community in the process. Well, that's the big right. thing. I think we've got to check the egos at the door and have everybody come in, and collaboration is the word. And, and you know, yep. we've, got, we've, all, we've talked about this, um, Brett, you can't stop it, but we can certainly try to curtail it, and it's going to come Absolutely. from education and action, not just – Absolutely. So thank um, you so much. We, Hey, Brett, one last question. Are you uh, a participant on the board of any nonprofits? I am not on any nonprofits currently, no. Okay. Um, I, I don't know whether being an actual member of a board would be problematic for you, either okay. direction, actually. But we have an advisory I, I board, uh, which is a non-voting okay. board. We'd love to have sure. you on that. Really? Wait, I, you yeah. know, I'd be more than happy to, truly. I think he okay. was a great asset because, uh, like I was, you know, the reason for me having you on the show today and, and speaking on your podcast is that we've got to understand the other side and to give credit right. to those that have, you know, come from the dark to the light side, basically. And, and, <laughs> Which are you, very few. <laughs> yeah, but it's like using that good, that bad for good. And uh, it's right. exactly why I started the Stand Up Speak Up because, you know, and everybody that's been a victim to something, unless you start speaking up, you're never going to heal from it and you're never going to teach someone else about it. And that's what I really love about what you're doing is that you're, you're letting us know how it happened, why it happened, and what you can do to change. 
And, and right, right. I don't want, you know, I, like I said, I could talk to you for a long time. I really like what you're doing, and I appreciate it, and I think that you could be a real asset to what we're trying to do on the victim side. Well, I would, I would be honored to be, a, be part of the board. I truly Thank would. Um, let me reach out. Let me send out. Within the next 15 minutes, I'll send a uh, contact over on LinkedIn. We'll get together and uh, start hashing this out. Okay, Tim? All right. Thank you guys so oh, much. Perfect. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Have a great day. Yes, sir. All right. Bye-bye, guys. Bye now. Bye, Tim. Bye.